Next on The Balanced Word, we'll hear about Smyrna, the suffering church. Wake up my soul, wake up early in the day, wake up my hand, and the instrument I play, wake up my voice, let the world hear me say, you are worshipped and it's all to hear today. Have you ever been through a trial or a period of discouragement and then you received a note or message from a friend that really ministered to you? It's always encouraging to know that a friend is thinking about us, isn't it? Especially at a time like that. That's exactly what the Lord did for the church in Smyrna in the second chapter of Revelation. Smyrna was suffering persecution for their faith and also tribulation and poverty. This little passage of just four verses is a reminder to stay faithful and that the Lord understands what we're going through. Here's Pastor Dave Rolf on The Balanced Word. Well, if you were with us last week, we began a new series looking through Revelation chapters 2 and 3. These are the letters to the seven churches of the first century. And they're really important, as I explained last week. When you think about it, we have Jesus who taught for about three years, and then he was killed. We value his teachings in the gospel so much. Combination of what he taught for three years, the bulk of it in the last couple of weeks of his life, and then ultimately a little bit of his teaching after he rose from the dead before he ascended into heaven. And really there was no church at that point. So he's giving instructions to people about when the day comes when you're actually a church, here's the way it's supposed to be. But now we don't hear anything else from him. God's working through apostles. Churches are growing. Good things are happening. But what I love about Revelation chapters 2 and 3 is this is Jesus, you know, 50 years later or more saying, oh, yeah, by the way, here's an update on what the church is supposed to be. It's one thing to establish a vision for a church that doesn't yet exist. It's another thing to step into an existing church system that's been around for a generation and then say, let's have a checkup. Let's talk about how you're doing and what you're doing. And so as a result, chapters two and three, if you, if you have a, you know, a Bible that colors the letters, it's the, the red letters. It's, it's Jesus talking to the church and it's Jesus talking to us. And for me, it's really important to hear what he has to say about a church that's established. Because what he says here is as relevant as what we are today in terms of how are we doing and what are we supposed to be doing. This is the last word of Jesus until the future after everything is all wrapped up. So to me, that makes these really important. As I explained last week, each of these churches was an actual church in the first century all of them in what they called Asia or Asia Minor, but what we know of as Turkey. And so Ephesus was the one we looked at last week. It was the first church in a series of, you could draw a line from Ephesus to all seven of the churches, and it was pretty clear that the intention of Jesus was take these letters and take the book of Revelation and pass it along to these various churches in these places. So He's saying, and while you're passing it along, I have something, a personal greeting for each of these particular churches. Because even though these churches are at the same time, they're 
all having different characteristics and uh, as a cross-section, it's such an important word from Jesus to us as his church, and it's more relevant today than it was to them even in the first century. So we saw that Ephesus was first. Ephesus was an incredibly important city and an important church, as we discussed last week. Paul started the church in Ephesus on his third missionary journey, and he pastored that church for three years, which was a lot for Paul. He moved around a lot. <laughs> then Timothy ended up pastoring there. Apollos pastored there. Ultimately, John, the disciple of Jesus, the one who is being receiving this revelation so that he can pass it, he pastored there in Ephesus as well. And after he finally got released from Patmos, he goes back to Ephesus, and that's where he died. And as I told people, we'll, we will next year, those of us who are heading over there, when we go to Ephesus, we'll go to the church that's built over the place where John was buried. So it's a logical place for him to begin this message. The church in Ephesus, he had a lot of good to say about it, but he had one concern, basically one central concern. And as we saw it, he's saying, you know, you guys, your theology is good. You're really good at sniffing out phonies. You're really good at exposing people who are twisting doctrine. And that's awesome as far as it goes. But you've lost your first love. You're not understanding that love is of primary importance and your lack of love will cause me to snuff out your church. Your church's very existence is at risk, not because, well, your theology is getting weak or because you're not evangelizing. Your existence is threatened because of the fact that you forgot what matters most. You forgot that love is the most important thing. Now, for John to send this message from Jesus to his home church must have been heartbreaking because John, we call him the apostle of love. He's the one, he called himself the disciple who Jesus loved. You read everything that John writes in his gospel, in his epistles, and it's all about how important love is. And here he is passing this message down to his home church and saying, you guys are losing that love that defines you. And your survival is not threatened because, oh, there's false teachers. That never threatens. The real threat is losing your love. You lose your love, you lose your existence. So they sent that message out, and it was an important place to start. Care about the things that are most important. And so... Now we get to second, the next church is the church in Smyrna. Now, if you remember, Ephesus is at a strategic location. If you look at it on a map, it's on a harbor right where the Aegean Sea is a huge bay that comes off the Mediterranean Sea between Greece and Turkey. And so Ephesus, or if you look on a map, they'll call it Kusadasai. That's the... That's the um, Turkish word for, for the city, but you can look at it on Apple Maps and it'll show you where it is. But it was a harbor that was right near where the Mediterranean Sea flowed into the Aegean Sea, and it was a strategic location. It was also 
a huge place for paganism, as we talked about last week. So there were there was a temple of Diana there that's one of the, well, the goddess Diana, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So culturally, they really had it together. A 100,000-seat amphitheater, a 20,000-seat theater. It was the center of culture, the center of paganism, and it was an important place for trade because of its location right there at the, at the entrance to the Aegean Sea along the Mediterranean. So you see that. Now, as we get to Smyrna, which, again, on your Apple Maps, it'll be called Izmir, I-Z-M-I-R. But it's similar in a lot of ways to Ephesus, but it's a little further up into the Aegean Sea. And so it's a harbor as well. What we know historically, though, it was a superior harbor to Ephesus for a few reasons. I mean, first of all, because it's a little bit more up into the Aegean Sea, it's a little, you know, 50 miles or so north of Ephesus. It, it is more protected from weather. The, when they would have storms, the silt would wash into the, to the bay at Ephesus, and larger ships couldn't even get in there sometimes. But Smyrna didn't have that problem because of it being more protected. If you look on a map, you can see that. But it also, Smyrna had, like, multiple large rivers that were flowing out of the land from all directions into their harbor. As a result, your trade could run up and down those rivers, plus those rivers could bring fresh water into the harbor. And so Smyrna had a, had a really a pretty amazing location. Also, if you go there, or even if you just look on a map, you'll see it. They had this view across the Aegean Sea to Athens, the ancient you know, Greek capital. And that was a big deal to them because their city, like Ephesus, had been restored by Alexander the Great. So they, they were connected to Greece, and they could look out, the, out their window and see it out there. And that made it really interesting. They, um, what the Smyrna, the reason it was called Smyrna is because one of their major products was Myrrh. It was stuff that was used for embalming fluid, which you go, God, what a thing to be known for. Of course, Jesus got it as one of his baby gifts, but, but obviously with some intention of symbolism there. But if you think about it, what better product, what better business to be in than the business of burying people? Because you always have plenty of business. I have a friend who who runs, has a mortuary, and every time I see him, I'm like, how's business? He goes, better than ever, because <laughs> people are still dying. And so they had that going for them, but they had a lot of trade. There were also, in Smyrna, there were a lot of Jews that fled there after uh, 70 AD when, when the Romans ran over, under Titus had run over Jerusalem, spread the Jews out. Quite a group of them ended up there in Smyrna which made for an interesting political climate there because you have people who are, you know, they were really big on Rome, but they could kind of get together. You had people who were super loyal to Rome, and then you had these Jews who were threatened by Christians because Christianity was growing by this time, and, you know, you're into the 90 AD or something. So Jews were scattered, Christians were growing, and the Jews found a strategic alliance with the Romans. Now, that might seem weird, 
The Romans are the ones who destroyed Jerusalem. But at the same time, they were the big fish in the pond. And the Jews understood their biggest threat isn't Rome. Their biggest threat is Christians. And so they gathered together there, and all of a sudden, Smyrna became one of the major places where you know, horrible persecution of Christians began to grow up. It became a popular sport. And it was the Jews stirring up the Romans. The Jews were telling the Romans, you can't trust these Christians because they don't believe in your gods. They were often, in literature, the Christians were referred to as atheists by the Romans and by the Jews. And that might sound weird to you since we know that, hey, we worship the same God as the Jews. And they believe in one God. They're, you know, they're not polytheists. But what you have to understand historically is, am I boring you? Okay. Um, what you have to understand, just checking. What you have to understand historically is the Jews had their one God, but they didn't care if people who weren't Jews worshipped other gods. That worked fine for them. In fact, it made them feel more special. We have our God, you have your gods, we all have gods. So for them, the idea that like Christians could say, nope, all those fake Greek and Roman gods, all the delusions, it's gone. There's only one God, period. So for them, the easiest way to stir up the Romans is go, you know, they, those Christians hate your gods. Because they're like, we have no problem with your gods. Because we have our God, but he's just our God. We're not, we're not into the business of making people Jewish. We understand that. So they weren't evangelistic. As a result, though, the Romans and the, and the Jews began to really gang up on the Christians and persecute them. And so it was a place where some of the worst persecution came about during that time. So here's the letter to the angel, the messenger, really, of the church in Smyrna. And I explained last week the word angel just means messenger. These aren't, you know, people flying around or, you know, it's not Shohei Otani. It's just messengers. And so they're taking this message, perhaps the pastors. And he said, here's what I want to say to you. These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Each of these letters are addressed using some of the description of the glorified Jesus that you find in chapter 1. So if you read back there, you'll see where he extracts some of those things in order to, to identify himself. But it's interesting that Jesus, in writing to Smyrna, starts out by saying, I know all about death because I've done it. And I came back from it. Death wasn't the end for me. Death was very temporary. I had a grave that I just rented because I wasn't going to stay there. And so that's who I am. So now he's going to talk to them a little bit about death, which was, for many of them, was impending. And he's like, I know what I'm talking about. I've been there. You haven't. And so he's establishing this identity. And then he said, I know your works. I know what you're doing. I know how you're doing life. I, I see what's going on with you. And again, in the word for works there isn't like, I know how many good things, charitable acts you're doing or whatever. It's just, ergo is just a word that means I know how you do life. I see what you're doing. And I see your tribulation. Now, there are people who go, oh, see, the church is there during the tribulation. 
The word tribulation just means pressure. It's used a whole bunch of times in a whole lot of different contexts. The seven years of tribulation that Revelation is going to unveil is a whole different, you know, it's, it's in a whole different category than I see your tribulation. He's not saying you are in the tribulation now because then the rest of it showing that it's yet future wouldn't make sense. The word tribulation just means pressure. And he goes, look, I understand that you're under pressure. It's hard for you to do what you're called to do because there's pressure on you. And he said, I get it. And I understand, I see your poverty, but actually you're rich. Already, they were sacrificing greatly because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. And at least partly because of their their unwillingness to make a commitment to the emperor, you know, to the Caesar. At that point, they had developed a, again, Smyrna was the first place where they out and out worshipped Caesar. They decided he's a god. And so everyone was kind of required to take a pinch of incense and offer it and say, Caesar is Lord. Now, for some of the people, they're like, hey, he's Lord, and small l. You know, they would play this game. But the Christians were so convicted that there's really only one Lord that they would refuse to make that pledge. As a result, it affected their ability to do business. Even as later on in Revelation, we will read about people who won't worship the beast end up, you know, it costs them their ability to buy and sell and to do business. So this was already being experienced by them. And he goes, I get it. You're becoming poor because of your integrity. But the truth is, you're actually much richer than people who sell out in order to compromise their faith. So I know that. By the way, this is one of the only churches that he doesn't tell them anything bad that they're doing. Um, We saw in, in Ephesus where he's like, okay, you got this, that's good. You got this, that's bad. You got this, that's good. These guys, he doesn't say anything bad about them. But he said, uh, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He has those Jews that think, that pretend, that act like they're representing Yahweh. They're fooling themselves, but they don't fool me. I get it. They are blaspheming. They are speaking against you, claiming to represent their God. And they're complete you know, they're completely corrupt. There's nothing real about their faith. They don't even deserve to be called Jews. They're a synagogue of Satan. But he says, I get it. But do not, verse 10, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. I'd rather hear somebody say, do not fear. You're not going to suffer. And he goes, you think it hurts now? It's going to hurt worse. But I don't want you to give in to fear. I don't want you to get panicked about what's going to happen. There are some people who read the book of Revelation and they see what the Bible says is going to happen on the earth and they're like, ah! Or they're worse yet, Christians who are like, oh, thank God I'm not going to be there. Or why? There are going to be people who are there who are your brothers and sisters who accept Christ. You really think it's that great? that you're not going to be, I don't believe that I'm going to be there. But at the same time, it's like, 
I don't, I'm not afraid of that. If it turned out that I was wrong and that the rapture isn't coming before the tribulation and I'm going through the tribulation, that does not give me great concern. I would be thinking about how many people I could take out before they cut my head off. And I'd be like, well, that's good. At least I know my mission. But he says, look, I don't want you to be afraid. Bad things are going to happen. And for a fact, things got much worse in Smyrna, for sure. But he said, fear is your enemy. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Oh, great. And their prisons were awful, by the way that you may be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. People debate what this actually means. There are some people who say they talk about there were actually 10 emperors and as a result, it's talking about all of those. Other people say, well, the final emperor who was persecuting the Christians really bad was in office for 10 years, so 10 years is 10 days. It's probably just a Greek expression that means for a while. It's like 10 days. You can, you can deal with anything for 10 days. But he said, be faithful until death. Thanks. I was really hoping that there was some escape clause here. He said, nope. You're being persecuted now. You're sacrificing now. But someday you're going to get killed. And you remain faithful. You're going to get killed one way or the other. You just don't. You have your priorities straight if you remain faithful while you're being mistreated and ultimately killed. And I will give you the crown of life. Crown of life is mentioned in other places as a reward. It's not the word here for crown isn't the word for a crown that a king would wear. It's the word for a crown that a victor would wear, a crown that would be given as a you know, trophy for someone who's really overcome. He goes, trust me, you'll die. You're faithful. In the end, you're going to look at it and go, this was one of the best things I ever did. This was something that was really precious to me, the crown of life. Thanks for joining us today for The Balanced Word with our pastor and Bible teacher, Dave Rolfe. We're developing a series on the seven churches of Revelation. And stay with us for more teaching from Pastor Dave. These programs are available by podcast at thebalancedword.com. You can also call us and request a CD copy at 949-362-7475. We'd also like to offer you Pastor Dave's Through the Bible in a Year series on a USB thumb drive for a gift of $25 or more. Go Through the Bible in a Year with Dave by ordering this special series today. Again, call 949-362-7475 or go to thebalancedword.com. Your gifts help to make these shows possible on stations like this one all across the nation. Thank you for standing with us with either a one-time gift or ongoing monthly support. Donations can be made at thebalancedword.com. Have you had a chance to listen to Pastor Dave's one-minute messages? You can listen to those at thebalancedword.com and even join our mailing list so you can have them delivered to you each day. You can also watch them on Instagram or Facebook by following CC Pacific Hills. We'd love for you to join us at Pacific Hills Calvary Chapel. Our service times on Sunday morning are at 8, 9.45, and 11.30. Directions and more information about the church can be found online at ccpacifichills.org. And you can watch our live stream there too, ccpacifichills.org. Can we pray for you? Just contact us through thebalancedword.com and leave a prayer request. 
or again, call 949-362-7475. Now let's turn back to Revelation chapter 2. And then he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. He goes, death is coming. It's going to come to all of us. Some of you will die in pain. But don't lose your perspective because there's another death that's way more serious than this one. The first death, Jesus is like, I did it. Bounced right back. I'm here to tell you, you're going to be fine. Don't be afraid of death. What you should be afraid of is dying without hope for eternity. Dying without knowing what's going to happen to you after that. Because there is a permanent death that if you refuse to be in fellowship with God, if you turn Jesus down as his offer for salvation is given, now you should be afraid. But you should be more afraid of being found to be somebody who's denied your faith than you should be afraid about somebody who who acknowledges their faith and ends up being killed. So he lays this out for Smyrna. It's like, wow, I thought it was bad. It's going to get worse. In fact, it did. It got a lot worse. We'll hear more about Smyrna, the suffering church, on the next Balanced Word with Dave Rawl, a daily presentation of Pacific Hills Calvary Chapel. Wake up my soul. Wake up early in the day. Wake up my hands. And the instrument I play with. 